We've just listened to a story, and for many of us, it's a really familiar story. It's a story about a woman who met up with Jesus, who was to her a foreigner and a stranger, and they met up at a well. But as a result of that rather brief encounter, she had to ask a question, a question that at some point we all have to ask. Who is this Jesus? Now, the Bible is made up of countless stories. It's full of stories of people, people who've got the same joys and sorrows, the same moods and passions, the same doubts, fears, heartaches as us. And in those stories, these people have to determine how they're going to respond to their creator God. And it's easy to read these stories one by one in isolation. But actually, we need to read them as part of one long and continuous narrative, a narrative that tells us the story of God, his world, and the people that he longs to have a relationship with. We have to remember that the original texts in the Bible hadn't got any chapter divisions and they hadn't got any verses. I think the chapters were added around about the 13th century and the verses came some time later. And whilst they're really convenient, because they help us to reference texts, they help us to quote from the Bible, we have to remember that they're human interventions. And as a result of them, we often read our Bibles in bite-sized chunks. And at times, reading the Bible in bite-sized chunks interferes with the fullest sense of the whole context of the passage and our understandings of what the author intends. Now, each of the Gospels is really distinctive in its own way. But the Gospel of John is particularly very, very different from the other three. The first part of John's Gospel is referred to as the Book of Signs. And that's because it includes some accounts of some miracles and signs that are not found in the other gospel. And I believe that John's key intentions can be found in chapter 20, verse 31. Um, because I'll read it, it's on the screen, but I'll read you the words as you find them in the Amplified Bible because they make it really, really clear. And he says that these signs have been written so that you may believe with a deep abiding trust that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed, the Son of God. And that by believing and trusting in and relying on him, you may have life, life in his name. And in his writings, I think John's seeking to provide us with convincing proof That Jesus was not just a prophet or a teacher, not just a friend, but he was that long-awaited Messiah. And he seeks to evidence this throughout the book through all these miraculous signs that Jesus performed. And in chapter 5, sorry, in chapter 2, before the reading from this morning, John describes the very first miracle in which Jesus turns water into wine at a wedding in Cana. If we'd read on in chapter 4, we'd have read the story of the healing of a government official's son. And then chapter 5 starts with the account of a lame man being healed. All of which, all of these different anecdotes show material and physical change that could not be explained, that we regard as miraculous. 
but interspersed with these accounts of physical transformations and miracles, we find two other stories. Stories which tell of the promises that Jesus made for changes that were going to be even more significant. Changes to the spiritual and the moral core of people's lives. Changes that would bring complete transformation to our daily lived reality. Our ability to connect with and relate to the living God. And we have to read and explore those two strands side by side. And between the account of the miracle at Cana and then the healing at the end of chapter 4, John recounts two of the most significant conversations of the Gospels. And the contrast between the two characters couldn't be more extreme. In the previous chapter, Jesus met with Nicodemus, a man, a man with standing and authority, a Pharisee and a religious leader, a well-known, respected figure in the Jewish community, a man for whom his religious observances provided the guarantee, he thought, of a way to heaven. But a man whose thinking was blown right out of the water when Jesus went right in there and introduced him to his need. And he said to Nicodemus, no one, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. And in this passage, following after, we still find that image of water, but by contrast, the main character is a woman. A woman who is not even given a name. And yet, it's the longest account of a dialogue between Jesus and a woman in all the Gospels, unless I'm mistaken. Now, in my younger life, I heard more than a few sermons in which the interpretation of this text, this story, hinged on two points in the passage. The first point was that she had had five husbands and was living with a man who was not a husband. The second point was that she had come to the well alone rather than in the company of the other women in the heat of the day. Therefore, it was assumed that this must be a woman of ill repute, a serial adulteress, perhaps even a prostitute looking for customers. It was framed as a story of a bad girl, a bad girl made good by Jesus, a woman of ill repute who then went and told all her village who believed that her story was so credible that they dropped everything to come and meet Jesus. And, you know, trawling around the internet, it appears that that interpretation still prevails quite widely. I think there are some other interpretations that we should consider. So let's start with what we know. She was a woman and she was a Samaritan. Therefore, she was marginalised on two counts. This was a time and a place where women were regarded as property. Their influence was confined to the domestic sphere. A respectable woman would keep herself covered up. Women had no voice or significant role in public life or in religious life. And generally, the word of a woman didn't count for a great deal. 
The Samaritans were utterly despised by the Jews. They were a mixed race. It emanated from intermarriage of the Jews who lived in the northern part of Israel and the local Assyrians and other tribes who worshipped other gods. And although the Samaritans still worshipped Yahweh, the God of the Jewish people, they'd also absorbed all the religious customs and practices of other tribes. And the animosity between Jews and Samaritans, deep-rooted prejudice, was long-standing, it was deep, and it was bitter. We have to wonder, don't we, what must have gone through this woman's mind as she approached that well all alone and found there was a Jewish man seated close by. Would she have felt vulnerable to the possibility of verbal racist abuse or worse? She certainly didn't, according to the story, initiate the conversation. And then we have to ask why a woman might have had five husbands in this context. Was there any significance to this? So we have to understand that conventions around marriage and honour had more in common with the practices that we find in communities in many African countries and in Islamic states today than with our own attitudes to marriage and relationships in 21st century Britain. Women couldn't divorce their husbands except in very rare circumstances. And it was unlikely, I think, that a man would marry a known adulterous woman being such an affront to his honour. So we have to conclude, well, I conclude anyway, you can make your own mind up, but I conclude that her five former husbands must have either divorced her or died. In many cultures today, women are still regarded as male property. Many are married very young and often to men who are much older. Due to internal intertribal conflict, hardship, famine, injuries and untreated diseases, husbands may die, leaving young wives with no means of support for themselves or their children. And this would create an intolerable burden for their own families. And so you find situations where parents will often marry daughters off several times because they cannot bear that burden of supporting them themselves. And for women like this young girl in the picture, marriage is an arrangement. It's an arrangement that gives them stability. It gives them respect within their communities. It gives them provision for their children. And I imagine that life in first century Samaria was not very different and that this woman's circumstances might not have been dissimilar. A woman might marry her late husband's brother. Could it just be possible that she'd been married to five brothers and finally tossed aside outside the family's protection? Childlessness was the main reason for a man to divorce his wife. Could it be possible that she was unable to have children, or at least to provide a husband with a male child? We may not ever know the answer to some of these questions. But I would suggest that in one, if not all, of these relationships, she might have experienced abuse, being bullied, being humiliated. Whatever the story, it appears that she was now in a position 
where her only means of security was within this relationship with the man who was not her husband. There's so much we don't know about this nameless woman. But we can surely surmise that through the events of her life, she had been wounded, deeply wounded. And yet we still see from verse 19 onwards that she exhibits uh, a spirit about her, a curiosity around matters of faith and belief. So how was it that Jesus came to be there to encounter with her? Most Jews traveling from uh, Judea in the south up to Galilee in the north would choose not to travel through Samaria. They would take a more circuitous route around, even if it took them up to three days longer. The choice of Jesus to travel through Samaria rather than taking the roundabout route, I don't think was either insignificant or coincidental. Because in the story that follows, in one simple act of asking that woman for a drink, Jesus crossed the barriers of gender, social and religious identity because Jesus paid no attention whatsoever to social conventions of any kind. And certainly there is much evidence in all the Gospels that he paid no attention to social conventions that diminished women. Those ideas entered the church sometime later, during the first early centuries, when the church fathers, or some of them, began to portray women as inferior to men. And woman was framed as the temptress that could bring a good man down. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus repeatedly challenged socially constructed prejudice. And he made visible those whom society tried to make invisible. He embraced those whom society saw as a threat. And one of the challenges that perhaps this story carries is that we as his people are called to do the same, to follow that example. And that can require work, effort, and stirring ourselves out of our safe zones, our comfort zones. But back to the story. As the conversation starts between Jesus and the woman, John portrays her as a thinker, a seeker, one who considers the issues of faith, of how people worship and relate to God. And at first she challenges Jesus, asking how a Jew could possibly ask a Samaritan for a drink. And then Jesus does it with her exactly what he had done with Nicodemus. He introduces her to her need. Physically at first, her need for living water, water that quenches the deepest thirst, water that washes everything away, water that flushes everything out, water that is clean and refreshes, water that rehydrates when a soul has become all dried out. And then he moves her in the conversation from the physical and the material through his word of knowledge about her relationships. And she senses that he is, in her own words, a prophet. But by then, the conversation's getting a little bit tricky, a little bit uncomfortable for her. And so she changes the subject while still keeping the conversation within that religious framework of ideas. And isn't that what we do? Isn't that what we can all do when the talk gets uncomfortable? Isn't that what we do when God is beginning to expose the vulnerabilities of our lives? We talk about church. 
We talk about our services and how we do things. We talk about our activities. We talk about people and things. Because that is safer than making ourselves vulnerable and letting God come right inside us and change us by the power of his spirit. But Jesus wasn't going to be deterred by that. He didn't back off. He declares to her that he is the Messiah. And in that simple, and I believe it was a gentle conversation, in that simple conversation, she has met with a foreigner and a stranger. She's acknowledged that he is a prophet, and she's received a revelation that he is the Messiah. Some pretty good conversation, don't you think? And then she goes. She leaves the water pot behind. She goes and tells the people in her village, a man has told me everything I ever did. And she asks in wonder and awe and amazement, could this, could this be the Christ? And as a result, the people come and they gather and they spend two days with Jesus and they say, to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. That was the start, the catalyst. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know this man really is the saviour of the world. It makes evangelism look really simple, doesn't it? A simple story, but it leaves us with some significant challenges. There's obviously the challenge to follow the example of our Lord The words and actions of Jesus demand that we change the way we think, the way we act, the way we relate to God, the way we relate to others, and the way we we relate to others who are different from ourselves. And we've got that gospel imperative to cross the barriers of gender, social, racial, and religious identity, to reach out to those people who are different, to challenge socially constructed prejudices, to welcome the stranger, and to speak up for those whom society has made invisible. Real challenge in these days, in our political climate, post-Brexit Britain, and changing of attitudes and upsurging of different attitudes around the world, a real challenge to us as God people to hold to that conversation. But I think the story leaves us with some more fundamental questions because it poses the question for us, who is this Jesus? Perhaps there are people here for whom Jesus is still something of a stranger. If so, then come, listen, open your heart, open your mind, ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to you who he really is. Perhaps you believe that Jesus is a teacher and a prophet, someone to model our lives on, and you seek to live your life according to his commands and his example. But we have not got the wherewithal within our human souls to do that. If we truly believe that Jesus is not just a teacher, not just a prophet, but the Messiah, then we have to accept that the life we live is not our own. It's been bought, bought with the price of Jesus going to the cross. And he demands in the words of a well-known hymn, our soul, our life, our all. And perhaps for many of us, the greatest challenge of all is not just offering our lives to Jesus. Many of us have done that over and over again. But maybe... 
there is a further challenge to allow him to speak in to the deepest, realist needs of us that we have. You know, we're all quite good at putting on masks at times. We can be like Dick and Nicodemus. We can be respected members, even of our church community, with our faith based on our, the religious habits that we've developed over a lifetime, immersion into church activities, and all that we do sincerely and genuinely in God's name. But we can still have a deep hole inside us, an ability to connect with and relate to the living God that we serve. And some of us may still need to be born again of water and the Spirit. I remember the story of a lovely old gentleman, a retired GP, who had been a faithful member of the Brethren Church all his life and in his 80s came into a new and amazing experience of God that he described as his true new birth. Our lives are not our own, but we often live as though they were. We drink from the wrong water sources. We drink from the wells of our own ambitions, our plans, our wishes. And then we wonder why we end up feeling all dried up. Jesus says, lay all these aside and come and drink from the fresh water that I give. Not just once, but continually, consistently. And as I finish, I will just say that as I was preparing to speak on this passage, I became very conscious that God wants to speak into the lives of those of us here who, perhaps like the woman in the story, have been deeply wounded. We come here week by week. We know one another in part, but not in full. And I think there are some people here who have been deeply wounded, perhaps some long ago within their own families, but have never had closure and be able to lay the things to rest and find healing. I believe there is some here who have been deeply wounded in their adult relationships, like this unnamed woman. And then they carry those wounds forward into other relationships. And those wounds start to fester and bring sickness and dysfunction. If that's your situation, come after the service and let others pray for you. There'll be prayer ministry available uh, in the room out here at the end of the service. Let others pray for you to receive those streams of living water. And I believe there are some here who have been wounded within the church itself. Maybe this church, maybe another. And because of those wounds, you ask yourself quietly, is the church really a safe place? Some of us may be like the woman at the well, seeking God, seeking to be worshippers, but so deeply wounded, we are all dried up inside. We all need to come and drink deeply from a well that quenches our thirst, that rehydrates us, that washes us clean. We may need that as individuals. We may need to do that as a church and ask God to heal us, to restore us, and to wash us from our past that we truly live in the fullness of life that he longs for us. So as we consider these things, let us just be quiet for a few minutes and then we'll move forward in the presence of God.